As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Yes, there's absolute truth, I believe, but I don't believe we can know it absolutely. We're not God. And so to deeply reckon with, I'm not God, and so it caused me to move to what I call epistemological humility. And what I mean by that big phrase, so to speak, is we can't know absolutely or exhaustively because we're not God. And yet what I came to is that we can know adequately. And so for me, that was a really big moment of doubting because I thought, well, if we can't know with absolute certainty and exhaustively, then can we just not know anything? Does that throw you the other direction into utter despair? And I came to a place of saying, no, you don't have to move to absolute despair. You can realize we can't know with certainty or 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 exhaustively, and yet we still can have knowledge that we that is reasonable. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians discussing and debating the topics that matter most to all of us. I'm your host, Billy Hollowell, and today I am absolutely delighted to introduce a very special edition of Unbelievable, where Ruth Jackson got to put some of the most Googled questions about God and Christianity to Bruce Miller. Bruce is the author of The Seven Big Questions, Searching for God, Truth, and Purpose, and they're going to be talking all about belief, doubt, and purpose. We're in for a fascinating discussion today, and Ruth Jackson She starts by asking Bruce, is Christianity too narrow? Then in the second part of the discussion, she pushes in a little bit further and she asks, is Christianity true or not? Hit that subscribe button and as always, let us know which arguments convince you the most. If the show raises more questions for you, we'd love to hear from you. But for now, let's listen in on this conversation. Well, Bruce Miller, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. And we're going to talk about your brilliant book, um, The Seven Big Questions. But before we dive into some of those big questions, would you just say a little bit about who you are? Who's Bruce Miller? Um, you know, what's what's your experience of these questions? Just tell us a little bit about yourself before we go into the specifics. Sure. And Ruth, thank you so much for the honor of inviting me to be here and being on your show. And it really is a delight to share this time with you. I am married to my wife, Tamara. We've been married for almost 40 years. We have five kids and amazingly now nine grandchildren. Wow. The youngest is just a couple of months old. And God's given me the privilege of founding a church in Texas that I love being the pastor of. And I love writing. Writing to me is is kind of like um, other people's art. It's a uh, something that I feel like God's calling me to do that I just enjoy. It's kind of like a form of worship to me to write. Wow. Lot of busy man. <laughs> Five children, nine grandchildren, lots, lots to keep you busy there. Bruce, what was your experience of God growing up? Did you grow up in the church? 
you know, my parents were not Christians when I was born, but became Christian when I was a little boy. And I trusted in Christ at five years old. And in a way that I just have take no responsibility for, don't really know, but I'm thankful for God just grabbed hold of me and implanted me in a strong, radical faith in him that I've never really deviated from significantly, but plenty of issues with struggling with sin, but no, no prodigal times. I've just been committed to Christ. And for me, it's that Philippians one to live as Christ, to die as gain. I just want to give my life to, to live for Christ. This might be a massive question, um, and I feel like it Go right ahead. Go right ahead. It might come out in in jibs and jabs as we do the next couple of episodes. But Bruce, why do you believe in God? If you had to kind of capture it in a nutshell, do you think that's a great question? Probably two two reasons. One on the intellectual side, as I was doing my doctoral work in history of ideas at a secular university, uh, one of the one of the dimensions of the University of Texas, <clears throat> University of Texas at Dallas. I realized that every religion and worldview can be critiqued. Uh, at that time, deconstruction was certainly a big fad in the university, and Jacques Derrida and all this kind of thinking. And so I realized Christianity too can be critiqued, and you can poke holes in anything. But I realized that just on an intellectual level, Christianity holds more water, is more intellectually rigorous and stable than any other worldview or religion or point of view. And so I thought just on the intellectual side, if you're looking for what's the most intellectually defensible, that it's Christianity. But on a personal level, it's my own experiences with God and the peace and the joy and the security that God has given me in all times in my life. I, I, I just a real, genuine, honest, personal encounter with the living God and relationship that is growing deeper and deeper as, as I've gotten older. Um, that tells me it, he's real. And Bruce, again, this might be quite a difficult question, but have you have you always been interested in these big questions? You said that you've sort of always been a Christian, but is that is you know are the questions something you've grappled with the whole way along your journey? Would you say? Yeah, that, thanks, Rick, uh, Ruth. Great question. And yes, I have. I've sort of always been philosophically minded, theologically minded. I've big questions have been appealing to me. So even in high school, I was reading in that time Francis Schaeffer and even John Calvin, and interested in the big ideas of who we are and what's reality and how do we know epistemology. And so I've grappled with those questions ever since I was probably a teenager and at different seasons of my life have wrestled harder with those sorts of questions. And why did you write the seven big questions? You know, there was another gentleman who did some research on what are the the most asked questions on the internet about God and faith and purpose and found these were the seven questions that were most asked on the internet on this topic of God and faith. And so I realized these are questions everyone has, or well, not, maybe not everyone, but lots of people have all over the world. And it's important to give answers to them in a way that doesn't require you to have read the Bible or been in church, but just humans, ordinary people, men and women, have these questions. They may not always vocalize them right away, but there are deep questions that all of us ask at one time or another in our lives and should. And so what was it that made you, I guess that's that's one thing, isn't it? Knowing those questions are out there. What made you think, right, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to tackle these questions. Was it something that had been kind of brewing for a while and you just thought now is the time because of this research? 
Well, it was something that was stirring in me, and I met someone who was involved in this ministry with this gentleman. Called, it's called ExploreGod.com, and I got exposed to ExploreGod.com and decided, you know what, we should do a series at our church on these questions. And so we did. We did a sermon series now a number of years ago, and it just got so much response from people, not only for themselves, but also for their family members and friends who have these questions. And people said, Bruce, this, you ought to turn this into a book. You ought to write this because we need this and our family and friends need a resource like this, something that you could hand to someone who's asking these questions and they could read or you could read it together. And so that's really what sponsored it is just real questions from real people and, and, and being providing a help for folks. So I guess the obvious question is, what are those seven questions, Bruce? Right. And so the seven questions, uh, this is the book. The seven big questions are, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus God? Is the Bible reliable? And can I know God personally? And do we know if one of those was like the most searched for one or were they sort of fairly standard across the board? No, you're right. One of them is the most searched. I don't know if you can guess, Ruth, but... Was it the, was it the pain and suffering question? Yes, it was. It was <laughs> the third question. Why does God allow pain and suffering? I think that that presses so hard mm. on all of us. And if you're listening right now and you're going through a season of pain or suffering, my heart just goes out to you. It is hard. It is not easy, and it often causes us to ask really serious questions about God and purpose. What's, what's this all about if I'm enduring this level of suffering or pain? While we're just kind of talking about how the book came about, um, is there a reason that you've ordered them in the way that you have in the book? I think that purpose is a question that comes up quite a bit for people. Um, it's a question we avoid and yet it's a question that, that surfaces sometimes in, in hard moments, like we were talking about pain and suffering in a moment of crisis, it also occurs in life transitions. You th people imagine, well, when I graduate, I'll figure out life's purpose, or when I get married or have a baby or get into a career, and then you cross those thresholds and you don't really find purpose. Mm. Or when I make a certain amount of money, maybe. Or... I find people ask this question in the ordinary boredom of life. It's I wake up, I eat my breakfast, I go to work, I come home, eat my dinner, watch some television and go to bed and do it all over again and all over again. And what is the point? And it comes up there and yet we dodge it because I think there's a fear that the answer will be there's not a purpose. Mm -hmm. And that just feels so dark that we, we don't want to face that. So we avoid the question with, work and children and media and yet maybe deep late at night when you're trying to fall asleep and you can't fall asleep this question haunts you and you've obviously touched on the question of purpose and suffering and, and we're going to delve into all of them a little bit deeper but do you have any idea why some of these questions are being googled so much i think these are human questions that go back in fact if you as you look at ancient literature ancient mythology these are questions that human beings have wrestled with for as long as we have written records of human interaction. And, and so I think they're really fundamental to being human and living in this world. Is there a purpose? Is there a God? Why do bad things happen? The, these are questions that people have wrestled with 
in in every country in every century. And do you think it's the same sort of questions over the centuries, or do you think do you think they've changed, or do you think it's kind of the same questions but perhaps just repackaged with like modern examples? I think some of them are are ancient and cross all time, like is there a God and pain and suffering? But I think other questions like is Jesus God mm. is of course a more recent question. And then is the Bible reliable? And those questions occur more specifically in terms of Christianity than just anybody broadly who's at, who are asking questions, whereas the questions about purpose and God and suffering are more universal. And do you think age, demographic, race, location, things like that impact the questions that are being asked? Or again, do you think it's a kind of everyone's asking the same questions, but just, they just look a little bit different in the way that they're asked, perhaps? You know, I, I think it's another great question, Ruth, and I don't really have the answer to that. I, I think that would require, to, to give a real honest answer or a finger answer, would require more research than I've done, objective research, sort of intuitively. My thought is that some of these questions are universal, but I find that there's different times in your life they tend to press on you more. I think when you're thinking things through as a teenager or in college, you tend to wrestle with these. And then again, in an empty nest, once you've raised your kids, there's another season and in retirement, there's another moment where you, when you stop your full-time working career and you begin to wonder again, well, what was the point of all this? Yeah. So I think there's some seasons in life that tend to be more common uh, or again, in a crisis, a divorce, getting a difficult diagnosis of cancer. These are moments when these questions occur. Sometimes actually it's outside your own personal life, but even life, even events in the world, you know, uh, folks in Ukraine mm. with the war are asking these deeper questions, perhaps more than some others because of the level of crisis they're enduring. And this might be too personal, so forgive me if it is, but is there any of the seven questions um, that you have found just really, really difficult um, for yourself to answer? Well, different ones in different ways. Um, the question on is the Bible reliable is the longest. Maybe it has a lot of different dimensions and complexities to it. The question of is there a God and is there purpose, I think relate to the ultimate question of whether there's any sort of purpose to life or whether there's just absolute nothingness. And that was a question I faced in my doctoral work to really wrestle hard with that. And I felt like the, the more, the honest, if there's not a God, then you end up in nihilism, you end up really in nothingness. So that's really a darkness. And then I think the last question in some ways is the most important of is I, can I know God personally? And if so, how and to what level? And that's taken me to deeper levels of reflection even now for myself. Uh, what does that mean to honestly not just know God as an an idea or a worldview or a religion or a set of practices, but honestly, personally, relationally, to to know God experientially? And is there anything, I guess, either from these seven questions or something else that has really caused you to doubt? Well, I think for me, I went through my last season of doubt really was in my doctoral work when using the tools of analysis, critical theory, deconstruction, we could deconstruct any point of view, including Christianity, and reckon, reckoning then with, is yes, there's absolute truth, I believe, but I don't believe we can know it absolutely. We're not God. And so to deeply reckon with, I'm not God, and so it, it caused me to move to what I call epistemological humility. And what I mean by that big phrase, so to speak, is we can't know absolutely or exhaustively because we're not God. 
And yet what I came to is that we can know adequately. And so for me, that was a really big moment of doubting because I thought, well, if we can't know with absolute certainty and exhaustively, then can we just not know anything? Does that throw you the other direction into utter despair? And I came to a place of saying, no, you don't have to move to absolute despair. You can realize we can't know with certainty or, or, or exhaustively, and yet we still can have knowledge that, we, that is reasonable. And I suppose it's one thing knowing answers to some of these big questions, but how, how should we approach questions? Because if, if people have got other questions that aren't perhaps raised in your book, how, how do we even go about kind of approaching those questions and beginning to answer them? Yeah, that's a, gra- that, that's a great question. That's one of the aspects of this book and approach is to say, let's embrace questions. Let's embrace doubt. Uh, let's don't run from it out of fear or a sense of, anxiety that maybe there won't be a good answer, but rather I believe we should run to questions and ask our, uh, raise our doubts and take a look, take a hard look at them. So uh, like with parents, with children, I encourage you, don't, don't shut your kids' questions down, but actually ask, ask them. And I'd say to Christians, a lot of times uh, it's common in a church setting to feel uncomfortable asking one of these questions. And yet most of us as Christians have these questions or one or two of them at one time or another in our life. But to say, I'm not sure the Bible's reliable, or I'm not sure Jesus is God, or I'm not even sure God exists, feels like I'm being a bad Christian or not a good church member. And yet, one of the messages I want to send is, no, it's good to ask these questions. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. But go ahead and ask the question and seek the answers, because my encouragement is, you're actually going to find out there are good answers, and there are people who have thought these questions through. And you'll, you'll find some, you're not going to end in despair. Well, let's do as you say. Let's embrace some of those questions. And let's kick off with that first one. Does life have a purpose? I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you about this is, do you think you would answer that question um, differently? Uh, does life have a purpose for a Christian and a non-Christian? Would you kind of have a different answer or a different approach depending on who you were talking to, do you think? I might have a different approach, but I would not have a different answer in the end. Mm-hmm. So what would, I mean, obviously you've got a whole chapter on in the book, but if you kind of put it into a, a nutshell, what would your answer be? Well, I guess what would the approach be to each of them? And then what would be kind of the overall answer? Yeah, you want me to give away the whole chapter just in one minute here? <laughs> I, uh, Absolutely. I, I, think, uh, I think a good approach is to ask questions. When you're in a dialogue with someone else, I find that we often try to speak more than we should. And I think listening and asking questions... And really out of a genuine curiosity to know what the other person is thinking. Sometimes an approach to asking questions is an approach to trap the other person, that you're actually asking questions in a way that is uh, somewhat aggressive, Mm. putting the other person in a corner. But I think rather to ask questions out of a heart of love and concern and curiosity, what do you think and why? How did you come at that conclusion? Because you really care about the other person, not because you're trying to win an argument. And so in doing that, I find that in asking questions about purpose, most people quickly come to an end. And maybe they've tried different approaches to finding purpose in life and found that there isn't one. I I find that people are surprised to learn there's an entire book in the Bible about this question, which is the book of Ecclesiastes. And on this question, I think as you ask, does life have a purpose? As you ask questions about it and begin to explore it, where it often ends 
is what the author of Ecclesiastes, where he ended, which many people think was Solomon, although we're not sure. And in fact, people are, are often surprised to discover that his answer was meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity in the old King James Version, that there, it, there is no meaning, which is, is a bit of a shocking statement that that's in the Bible, that he would come to that point. And I think as you're talking with someone, especially who's not a Christian, it's actually good to get to that place of, well, does making more money lead to purpose? Well, no. Well, what about achieving a higher and higher level in your in your industry that you rise higher and higher? Well, no, that's not it. Well, having children raising them, no, that's not it. And so when you look at Solomon, sometimes people wonder, well, if I just had enough money or opportunity, I could find purpose. Uh, you don't. So Solomon was the wealthiest man of his day and the most powerful man. So he actually had the opportunity to try it all. <laughs> and he did. He tried every kind of pleasure, building project, all, all kinds of power. And in the end, he said, no, none of it is really bringing, bringing meaning. Even the study of wisdom itself, learning more and more. And he was the wisest man who lived at the time. Still meaningless. And I think to really reckon with that is challenging and important. But then you sort of make the differentiation in the book, don't you, about that phrase, under the sun? That's right. Uh, a lot of people miss that, not as often as the word meaningless, but very often Solomon uses the phrase under the sun. And I hadn't ever, I hadn't seen that at the first in studying Ecclesiastes, but I realized he's giving us a big clue. Here's a big hint that yes, in this life, if you're only looking at this life, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the nihilist, the existentialist are correct. There is no meaning. You end in nothingness. And if you're only looking in the frame of this life on this earth under the sun, so to speak. And so the hint Solomon's giving us is that the only place to really find meaning is above the sun. Above the sun, we have to look at a longer frame than just this life. There's another interesting uh, artful, poetic phrase in the middle of the book. He says, God has set eternity in our hearts. What an interesting phrase. And that what, he's, what he's pointing at is that all of us have this sense that there must be something more. So almost every religion point of view is that there's some sort of afterlife. Now, not a materialist, materialist point of view, but many people believe, well, there's got to be something beyond. We all sorts of different theories and approaches, but there must be something more than this life. And we're right. And it's that, that somehow there's eternity in our hearts. Somehow there's a, a, an inner sense. And, and that inner sense, that intuition is correct. That the only way to really find meaning and purpose is to look above the sun. And you touched on this earlier, but there's a great line in your book, which I'm just going to read out. Um, you say the okay. daily grind is mind numbing and overwhelming. It's easy to begin to lose any sense of a greater purpose. Um, I think, as you know, as you say, that just kind of sums up how a lot of people feel, Christians and non-Christians. So I guess, again, you go into this in great detail in your book, and I would highly recommend people reading it. But, but what is the solution to that? Yeah, I think so many of us are caught in the daily grind of life, just one day after another that feels the same. And we're wondering, are we really accomplishing anything? Does any of this really matter? Which leads us to any anxiety medicines, antidepressants or just numbing ourselves with alcohol or marijuana or numbing ourselves with sports or media or video games or something to just not think about it. 
And my encouragement is no, it's worth pausing the screen <laughs> to stop and think about it. And otherwise you don't really ever live a life full of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. You do live this mundane daily grind that doesn't really bring meaning and fulfillment. And so I would encourage you, if you're asking this question or if it's, if it's crossed your mind, yeah, it's worth stopping to think about it, read about it, ask questions about it, engage somebody in dialogue about it in a serious way, not in an argumentative way, but hey, these are some, these are questions that it's really worth taking time to wrestle through and, and think through for yourself, not just accept someone else's answer, but I, I believe the answers that we discover for ourselves are the ones that really matter to us and really make a difference. You say, instead of rushing to slap a Bible verse band-aid on the pain or trying to find solace in some greeting card cliche, take the time to listen to the why behind your thoughts or your friend's fears. What do you mean by that why? I think sometimes Christians are, are guilty of throwing out a cliche as if that was going to solve the problem when people have really deep feelings, really deep concerns, experiences they've been through. And I think that as caring people, we want to listen. And again, again, ask questions and find out, tell me about, tell me your story. I find that a lot of people's questions about God and life and purpose are not philosophical, intellectual. Not that that's not a dimension of them, but it's about the experiences we've had, the hurts and pains disappointments that we've had or those we love have had and to take those really seriously and learn somebody's story what they've experienced and been through maybe they've been hurt by a church or religious figure or let down or disappointed and it's knowing someone's story and taking them very seriously not just a a person to debate with or an argument to try to logically dismantle it's more a person to love and care for and listen to. We need to take a quick break. I'm Billy Hollowell, and you're listening to Unbelievable, the show that deals with the questions that matter. Today, we are addressing the most Googled questions on God, including is Christianity true or not? And is Christianity too narrow? Ruth Jackson is in conversation with Bruce Miller, and in a moment, we will return to the discussion. For now, hit that subscribe button if you're on YouTube, or take a moment to rate the podcast on Apple Podcast. And as always, you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk, or get in touch via social media at unbelievablefe for X, and it's Premier Unbelievable for Instagram. If you want to hop on over to Facebook, it's facebook.com slash premierunbelievable. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment and return to the most Googled questions about God with Ruth Jackson and Bruce Miller. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. 
And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back. You're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians, skeptics, agnostics, and all those in between thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. I'm Billy Hollowell, and today we're showcasing a conversation between Ruth Jackson and Bruce Miller. He's the author of The Seven Big Questions, Searching for God, Truth, and Purpose. They're tackling some big questions today. In the first part, they asked, is Christianity too narrow? And now they're getting into, is Jesus really God? And did he really rise from the dead? Let's get right back into it. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us again today. We're going to tackle another two of those big questions. The first of which, I'll just dive straight in, is, is Christianity too narrow? Now, that strikes me as being a big objection, particularly for non-Christians. What, why do you think it is such a big objection? Why is Christianity too narrow? Yeah, it is a huge objection all over the world today, probably especially in the Western world, because we have valued tolerance so highly. And we have then, we've actually kind of redefined tolerance. Uh, originally, what tolerance meant is, I disagree with you, but I will accept you and welcome you, although we disagree. So if you didn't have disagreement, you couldn't have tolerance. Mm-hmm. Ironically, today, we've redefined it as that your view is correct and my view is correct. And so we want to uh, agree with everybody and accept everybody's view as valid, even though the views differ from each other. And so that's sort of challenging. Like uh, with, with, Christi- with God, people like to use the image of a mountain and say that, that all the different religions and worldviews are different paths up the mountain. And they all go to essentially the same place, which is that there is some sort of a God and you should live a moral life and then you'll have a great afterlife. And isn't that the same top of the mountain? And whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or anything else, it's all basically the same. And let's just agree to disagree. Why would you say that your view is the only view and the only right view? And that that sounds, I think, to modern ears, that sounds arrogant. It sounds presumptuous. And even it can sound a bit aggressive, like, so you're saying everybody else is wrong and you're right. We have to see it your way. And it's offensive. There are obviously some similarities between Christianity and some of the other major world religions, some yeah. of which you touch on in your book. What would you say are some of the big similarities? And, and can that be a kind of helpful point of contact when we're talking to people of different religions? Sure. I mean, at a, at a high level, um, Lots of religions believe in some sort of a divine, some sort of a God figure of some sort. Most religions have some sort of morality, and some of it is the same, like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's a form of that in most every major religion. And most religions have some form of an afterlife. And something we do in this life impacts what our afterlife looks like. Those would be common traits. And I guess on the flip side, what would be some of the big differences and and why do they matter? What uh, you find is at a little closer look, the religions are actually not the same. So 
Christian Judaism has one God. Hinduism has many gods. Islam has one God, Allah. Christianity is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are forms of Buddhism where there is no God. So how can you have many gods, no God, one God, and a trinity? Those are not the same. And in fact, to say they're the same is insulting to every religion. Because what you're then doing is saying, oh, your point of view about Allah doesn't really matter that much. It's pretty much the same as Hinduism with many gods. Well, no, it's not. And the same with with morality. There aren't the same rules in all the different religions or the afterlife. It's very different. The views are not the same at all. And so, and how you get there and what difference it makes are not the same at all. So it ironically, in the attempt to be tolerant and loving and kind, you're actually offensive mm. to everyone. <laughs> but, and, and you act as if you're, you, you have some view above every other view. And so it's, it, in an attempt to be humble, you actually end up being the most arrogant of all, as if you know better than every religion. And you say something brilliant again in your book. I'm just going to quote you here. You say, believing something is true doesn't make it so because truth is independent of our beliefs about it. Would you just expand um, what you mean by that? Yes. And I think here it's important to distinguish between truth and preference. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you said that you like vanilla ice cream, I, I prefer mint chocolate chip would be my favorite ice cream. Well, neither of us is right or wrong. You like vanilla. I like mint chocolate chip. But if we both went to get ice cream and you said, I'm eating broccoli, I would say, no, you're not. You're eating ice cream. Mm. That it's, it, that's just not true. Or sometimes we might have a belief, but just because we believe it doesn't make it true. You can want it to be true. Like for instance, you might say, well, the price of gasoline or petrol is so high that I don't want to run my car on gasoline. I want to run it on water. Water is so much cheaper. I'll get my hose and I will fill up my gas tank in my car with water because it's much cheaper than gasoline. Well, you could to try, you could believe that <laughs> and you could do that and your car will not run. Reality is, is quite stubborn that way. <laughs> <laughs> So then I guess that leads to the question of how do we know which religion, which worldview, which approach is true? That's exactly right. That's the million dollar question. That's, that's where this chapter ends is that you can't, you can't have it that all the religions are equally true. It's just, well, let me say it this way. You can say that it's not rational. It, it doesn't really make good sense and it's offensive. So yes, you can say that, make that point of view. But really, if you're being intellectually honest, it's that one of them is true or none of them are true. Mm. It's not that all of them are true. And with Christianity, what actually I find to be remarkable is that it's not exclusive. And so when you, when you really look at what Christianity says, it says that God loved the whole world, so he sent his son, that God wants everyone to come to repentance. And it is actually inclusive of every race, every ethnicity, every kind of person, no matter what you believe, where you've been born, who you are in the world. And then when you look at objective reality, Christianity 
is the most ethnically, culturally diverse religion in the world, by far. Christianity is in every country, every major religion, nearly every minor, uh, not just religion, I mean uh, language, every major language, every minor language in the world. It is, it is incredibly diverse. Some people think that in their own country that Christianity is like a Western religion or a, an English religion, but it was uh, started in the Mediterranean world and now is spread all over the world and is actually the most inclusive, diverse religion in the world. Bruce, you've touched on tolerance already and the fact that it kind of has changed meaning. Um, so would you say then that tolerance isn't the solution to living at peace with those of differing religions? I really think that tolerance is not sufficient. So Christianity calls us to go beyond tolerance. Yes, we should tolerate each other, but Christianity calls us to love. Jesus made such strong statements when he said, love your enemies, be kind to those who disagree with you. And by enemies, he, in sort of in that time frame, met people who are different from you. So actually, what I think we need to do is not just tolerate each other, but certainly as Christians, if you're a Christian listening, we need to go beyond tolerance to actually love those around us, particularly those who disagree with us or who we might in some form or fashion consider to be, quote unquote, an enemy or certainly opposed to us in some way. Before we dive into the next question, I guess as we sort of round off this topic, how do we know then that Christianity is true? I mean, does that come back to the kind of question that we've already talked about is how, how do we know God exists? Are they tied in together? Um, well, I really think knowing that God exists doesn't prove a Christian God. It's really just showing the reasonableness or, and the rationality that a God exists, that you haven't now proven or shown that it's rational that the Christian God exists. And I think looking at, with, at Christianity's inclusivity and breadth doesn't again prove that it's true. It really rises to this to the next question. It's really the next chapter which addresses, is Jesus God? that drives straight at the heart of whether Christianity is true or not, which really is the question that we're left with. So the next question then, is Jesus really God? I mean, presumably the people Googling this question are at least, you know, is somewhat interested in exploring Christianity because I guess you wouldn't be thinking about whether Jesus was really God if you're completely apathetic and That's not right. interested in this. And Jesus is such an amazing figure. Uh, almost everyone respects Jesus on one level or another as a great moral example, a great wise teacher, a, a religious founder. And so then once you, once you have some respect for Jesus, however you've encountered him, and he's respected in other world religions too, uh, many of them, you then ask, but, but is he God? Mm. Because that, that's a much different question than is he simply a good moral teacher or a good moral example? Uh, you know, someone to be admired and listened to and studied. But to say he's God is, is a whole nother question beyond, far beyond that. And why is there such a high respect for Jesus, do you think, among, you know, peoples of all religions and none? Because even lots of atheists would say that, you know, some of the morals that he espoused were are helpful and good. I think that's a great question. You know, I don't, I don't ultimately know the answer from people's points of view. I, you know, I would, my guesses would be that when you read the New Testament, you realize what he had to say really is wise. It really is good. It resonates uh, deeply in our souls and our hearts. No matter what we believe, we realize, well, what he had to say was his parables really wise and his life as it's described in the four gospels 
is a, a great life of caring for people, doing miracles, reaching out to the least and the lowly, the marginalized of his day, and ultimately sacrificing his life. So, but I guess for Christians, it's not just that. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a good guy. He's not just someone who kind of sacrificed himself like like a human would sacrifice himself. Um, Christians believe that Jesus was God. So why does his divinity matter, that question of whether he was or wasn't God? Why is it an important question? It's really the heart of Christianity is whether he's God or not, because if he's not God, he's not our savior. And that's really the heart of Christianity. And so first you have to ask, does he even... Why would, why would anybody say he's God? And so to go back to ask that, that question, did Jesus claim to be God? What did he claim about himself? And as you go back and look at the, at the Gospels, you realize he actually did. He said he claimed that he was the quote-unquote I am, which is the name for God, Yahweh, in the Hebrew Bible. And the Jewish people wanted to stone him because they said he's committing blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. So now you're stuck in a hard position. What do you do with someone who claims to be God? Because frankly, Ruth, if one of my friends claimed to be God, I'd be quite concerned about that. (laughs) I would think they probably lost their mind or they were just teasing me, kidding, or maybe there's a much bigger concern. And so that's a problem that that Jesus claimed to be God. He's not been a great moral teacher. He's a, he's a, C.S. Lewis famously said it's a trilemma. Either he is lost his mind, he's, an, he's a crazy person, he's insane, or he is an evil person. He's claiming to be God and, and he, knows he's God. he knows he's not God and he's claiming to be God. That's, that's manipulative, that's, that's not good. That's being, he's a liar. So either he's a lunatic or he's a liar or he claimed to be God and he actually is. So he called it the lunatic liar lord trilemma. That those are really your options. And C.S. Lewis pointed out he did, Jesus didn't really leave us the option that he's simply a good moral teacher. That that's not really a, a live option since he claimed to be God. And then you think, okay, then what did his followers believe? Because here's guys, people who Peter, James, and John, his twelve, his twelve apostles. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they're all kind of regular people, and they followed him around for three years listening to him. They were his friends. They ate together, they hung out together, and now their friend is claiming to be God. Well, back to me with my friend, what would my friend have to do for me to believe, you know, they really are God? Mm. And so it's amazing that these Jewish people who believe there is only one God, because they were all Jewish, his original followers, all claim when you read the new testament letters when you read what paul said and peter they claim jesus is god and so we're left with jesus claimed he's god and the people who were his friends his closest followers who knew him best claim he's god that's remarkable and obviously a big part of that is the resurrection. You discussed that in great detail in the seven big questions. How did you personally become convinced of this core belief of Christianity that the resurrection did actually happen? Yeah, as I, as I studied uh, in the Bible, the, bur- the chapter you want to go to is 1 Corinthians 15, is the chapter on resurrection in the Bible. And I began to, to study the resurrection in the Bible and then in history and look at the evidence for it and realized that this really is... The, the most important question is the turning point question for Christianity. And in fact, the Bible recognizes that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 
the Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. And so if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he's not God. And if he's not God, then Christianity is not true. And the Bible is not reliable. If he did rise from the dead, then he is God. And then everything follows from there. Christianity actually is true. So if you're wrestling, if that's your question, is Christianity true or not? I would encourage you to focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of extraneous questions. What about the dinosaurs and on and on and on, all sorts of interesting questions that are worth asking and talking about. But the central question, the most important question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is that one of the core reasons why you believe that Jesus is God? Or is there other evidence that points you in that direction? Or I suppose, is there like a personal element as well? Oh, yeah, there's definitely a personal element. So intellectually, it's the resurrection that is most compelling to me for why Jesus is God. Personally, and and more subjectively, it's my own experience with Jesus Christ. It's the fact that he has literally changed my life and is present with me on a daily basis making a, a real difference in my life and the, the the miracles that I've seen and experienced in my life. But on an intellectual level, it's the resurrection that's utterly compelling. And they're just, they're, in addition to my chapter, there's all sorts of books at different levels, depending on whether you'd like to read a lighter read or you want to read the most academic treatment that there is. I'd encourage you to search those books out and Google, Google the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you'll find incredible evidence that supports the truth of the resurrection historically. So I guess as we come to the end of this episode, because sadly we've got to end it at some point, but I would, as always, um, recommend that you read Bruce's book for for more detail. But as we come to the end of this episode, how would you convince a skeptic who's wrestling with this question of, is Jesus God? Yeah, I would really encourage a skeptic to study the resurrection yourself, but look at a couple of realities around it I'll tell you one that just is astounding to me is that the these early followers were all Jewish and they had confidence in Jesus, but when he was crucified, they all ran away and they all went into hiding and none of them thought there would be a resurrection. In fact, they went to the tomb to anoint his body and they were shocked that the tomb was empty and wondered where in the world he was. And then they they see him they report seeing him as eyewitnesses, and all of uh, they all change all these early followers to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What in the world could have convinced them? Then most of them were killed for their faith. They literally died martyrs' deaths. If they knew it was a lie, who would die for a lie? That just doesn't make sense. They must have really believed it. And then you, you, you find this amazing transformation that, that all these Jewish people who, for whom Saturday was the Sabbath now move their day of worship to Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead. Major changes in religions like that don't happen overnight. It just, it just doesn't happen that way. There has to be an explanation. And what other explanation is there than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Bruce, thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today, but I would very much encourage people to get hold of the seven big questions. Thank you, Bruce. You're welcome. 
Well, there you have it. You've been listening to Ruth Jackson and Bruce Miller. We will be returning to this discussion in a future show because there are still some great questions to cover. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I, of course, have loved it as always. And we want you to let us know your thoughts. Send us your questions. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or go on social media. It's at unbelievablefe on X or on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Premier Unbelievable. Please be sure to also rate on your podcast provider the show because it's a huge help to us at Unbelievable. It helps get the podcast seen by those who don't yet follow us. For now, I'm Billy Hollowell, and it's been great to be with you. And we'll see you next time for more discussions and debates on Unbelievable. Until then, from me and the team, goodbye. Goodbye.